up in Transvaal there's a sand grouse called the yellow-throated sand grouse, which is the size of a racing pigeon, and they are very difficult to catch, um, especially for an ayahs hawk. You know, passage birds do it a bit easier. And in my second year, I went up there, and I'll never forget that flight. It was on a friend of mine's birthday, and she just flew to a little, literally a pinprick, and we flushed five or six of them. And I think that stoop that day was the most memorable day. You know, it's like burned into my memory for so long. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falcon Retold Podcast. And we're about seven episodes now into this uh, series that's brought to you all by the Cape Falconry Club. And as always, I have to give them a very big thank you for helping to make this series come to fruition and for trusting me to bring their stories out to the wider world. It's always going to be very, very appreciated and listening back to all these memories and what seems like forever ago now but was only a few months ago man it's been it's been really nice reliving a lot of these conversations and uh, i hope you all have been enjoying them also a big shout out to the falconry heritage trust for their small grant that helped make this series happen as well without that small grant i probably wouldn't have been able to afford the airfare and other expenses to help make this series happen so Big thank you to them, and if you haven't yet, head to falconryheritage.org to check out more about their mission and their goal to continue to help preserve falconry's cultural heritage around the world. It's definitely worth the effort, and I highly recommend that you go there and help support them. And of course, a big thank you to one of our newer supporters of the podcast, being Bobby Yager Crafts out of Poland. If you haven't heard me brag about his equipment yet here on the podcast, well, it's great stuff, and it's become a a staple of my falconry. Pretty much uses anklets pretty exclusively now, and the uh, anklets that he makes with the Marshall Easy Twist nut sewn into the sides has become one of my favorites. So if you haven't had a chance to check out his equipment yet, I highly recommend you do so. His contact information can be found on our website at falconretold.com. And he's also at Bobby Yaga Goshawk on Instagram. So this was another great episode for me to be able to do because it was another chance to talk to another falconer who is partially responsible for the formation of their province's falconry club, as well as kind of being involved in the falconry legalization process in their respective province as well. And I also was fortunate enough to be able to get a chance to see one of his birds fly and and his dogs run while I was there as well. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode with Francois. He was a really great guy and it was great getting a chance to to know him and uh, hear some of his stories while I was over there. So without further ado, we're just going to jump into this episode here and I hope you enjoy hearing another falconer's perspective with, with this process. So Without further ado, you will get a chance to hear Francois Breit's story, and we'll jump right in. Here we go. What is it now? I guess we've kind of been around each other and passing, like, what, a few times now? We've all kind of had our own agendas, but... Yeah, yeah, it's been um, been quite a eventful couple of days with all the rain and stuff we've had um you know i actually haven't had the time to meet up with everybody at the field meet as well and um yeah it's um nice to be out here um nice to be talking to you um hope your trip has been sort of informative and you know meeting new people and learning about how we do things back here in sa and um 
yeah it's it's nice to nice to be yeah yeah well no thank you for your time and and for being another guest that uh, agreed to take the time out of their their meat and their socialization and it's really been eye-opening and hearing about how the differences are between everything you all have had to go through in these different areas, as opposed to, you know, things that, that we do and, you know, we, we deal with, and then also learning, you know, how other countries, you know, just the stark differences has been, it really has been you know pretty interesting. Yeah. I think, I think in South Africa, we're quite um, privileged with where we are with falconry. Um, as you rightly said, every province has got their, um, dealings with a provincial sort of um, nature conservation um, departments. And it, and it, you know, geographically, we also are quite diverse. Um, you know, not a big country, but I think if you travel from the northern parts of the country down to the Western Cape, you're going to go through a range of diverse vegetation and, 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 and landscapes. And, um, yeah, we're fortunate in falconry to – we've got a very healthy – um, national body, um, you know, all the clubs are affiliated to that. Basically, to very similar to what I think you guys do at NAFA. Um, and it's basically just to standardize um, everything we we practice and mentor and stuff. Um, you know, um, yeah, so, so I think we're in a good place. Um, it's due to the hard work of a lot of people back, I would say, in the, in the 80s. I know there was some falconry legalized before then. Not very familiar with that, um, a little bit before my time. But um, I think the middle, I would say, I guess, middle to late 80s was a lot of groundwork was done to get falconry where it is today um, through various role play, players in in different provinces. Um, we, we try to standardize our grading system, very similar to what you guys have got with the, the, the sponsor and the you know your tutorship and, and stuff like that so we yeah we we we're fairly good i think um i've been to the u.s a couple of times other falconers have traveled more abroad than i did and it is prevalent i think our falconry is at a good place i don't know what your thoughts are what, what you've seen um but yeah i think i think south african holistically we're in a good place with with falconry you know we've got a good a great wild take um different amounts and totals of different species um, we've got some access to some nice captive breeding birds um, so yeah I think in in a nutshell we we're in a good place yeah and and you know as far as the wild take aspect of things I was relieved to hear that you all have access to that and you know I think in the US sometimes it's easy for us just to kind of take I don't, I don't want to say take it for granted but we were so used to it and, you know, also seeing like these other countries that don't have it, you know, like the UK and I mean, you, you've listened to the podcast and stuff. So, I mean, like hearing some of the differences in, in the other countries with like that, that don't have it. And, you know, I would definitely, <laughs> I would much rather have it than not have it. Yeah. 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 yeah I think it's, it's, it, it opens up um, falconry to people that don't have a big um, bank balance. Um, but it's also a nice way of introducing uh, new members to species, which they which can be released. You know, they can fly them a season or two, or longer if they would so wish. But um, and it helps you understand the the art of falconry a bit better. Um, you know, we're living in a 
in an era now where we're thrown with with um, with drones and GPSs and stuff, which is a big privilege. But I think there's a big fundamental um, way of looking at falconry, what they did in the old days. You know, I referred to the 1800s and maybe early 1900s when, when falconry was very rife, especially in, I think, in the UK, um, in Europe. And, um, yeah, so so there's definitely it's, – it's nice. And you see a lot of the younger members come through. You know, guys just out of school or sometimes in school still, and they – They've got access to African goshawks and Lana falcons. I mean, there's two Lana falcons if you've as you've seen here, um, and it's and it's nice to know because you don't want to just tell a guy to buy himself an expensive Jeff Peregrine. I think he loses the the um, the crucial part of what falconry is actually about, you know. Um, and um, yeah, so we're very privileged in that regard. Yeah, it is kind of interesting seeing how. You know, with your system and the way everything works, I mean, and, you know, with um, with our system, it, it varies between state to state. But I mean, like in, I know in Indiana, kids as young as, as 12 can can become apprentices and and um, it doesn't happen very often. But at least the opportunity is there if you've got the parties that are willing to, you know, deal with those, you know, logistics and circumstances and, and things. But but um, yeah, I think. Like I said, dealing with wild take and, you know, just being able to go and buy a bird, it is two completely, you know, different things. And it does make you appreciate more when you're when you're able to deal with something that is truly wild, you know, all the different aspects of things that go into, you know, developing. It's a different developmental relationship. You know, you, you go about things a little bit different way and, you know, it's um yeah, it's it's a different appreciation with all of that. But, you know, as far as though, I mean, where you're from in particular, you're free state, correct? Yeah, I was I was born and bred in the free state, been yeah. in Cape Town now, I think, 12 years. Okay. Um, yeah, my falconry was actually an interesting story. We um, when I was at school in 1986, um, we had a book, um, prescribed book, second English or second language. And um it was my side of the mountain, which I think is quite prevalent in a lot of the podcast, <laughs> how people got triggered by yeah, that. Yeah. But before that, I was always out and about with an air gun, always wanted to fish and hunt. Um, and listening to a couple of your previous podcasts, I think a lot of people come into falconry via aviation, the love of aviation or naturalist or bird watcher. I came into falconry because I wanted to hunt. And reading the book was like a trigger that was pulled. And I was just like, could this be done? You know, is this, and I mean, those are the days before internet. And um, there was one or two guys um, at school with me that was sort of dabbling around it and, and, you know, trapping hawks and stuff. And it was illegal those days. I mean, we, you know, the free state is a very Afrikaans culture and, um, but very conservative culture. So, the conservation authorities were not very open-minded to anything outside what what you know was legal at the time, and um, yeah, I went to the army. We were compulsory army. Um, went to the army in 1989. Um, was compulsory two year. Came out in 1990, and then was sort of trying to find my feet. But you know, had a couple of kestrels and stuff when I was at school, but never really amounted to anything. So I can't really say I was a falcon. I was more you know, finding my way in and and having my folks drive out on a Sunday to go trap kestrels illegally and stuff, you know. So, 
And um, yeah, so then I was I was glad to hear that when I got back, there was um, one or two uh, people that was at the university at the time that formed the Free State Falconry Club. But it was in very it was in its infancy at that time, um, and just through talking to to nature conservation and saying and they saying oh there's a guy Stephen Squires who's got a bird in in Jakobstal and um, Howard Waller in in Parais which is on the border of the Free State in Gauteng and so I became I, I got connected through falconers. and looking back now I think Zimbabwe and falconry was very fundamental laying a platform on how to do it properly in South Africa. Um, there's a guy with the name of Ron Hartley. I think you've heard of him. Um, great guy. Did a lot of um, scientific studies on on titers and peregrines and lanners. And um, yeah, so I think what happened in South Africa, and that's my take on it, is that various role players from other provinces went and saw how to work the model there. You know how to propose a constitution that's acceptable to nature conservations in different provinces in South Africa. and um, But because I think of Ron's and the Zimbabwean Falconry Club at the time, um, scientific studies, they that was that was a good motivative reasoning to allow falconry because of the the, the knowledge that falconers carry as, as prevalent in the Peregrine Front. I mean, you know, that's some that's a wonderful story with Tom Cade and <laughs> and all the guys over there. So yeah, so then basically just got obsessed, you know, literally obsessed. I chose work, um, you know, that allowed me to fly birds and just got so obsessed and drove to make, made an effort to meet up with these contacts that, you know, I, I gathered in the early 90s. And, um, you know, you a book can only teach you so much. You know, you learn from people. And, and yeah, so those people were instrumental in, in also helping me form where I wanted to be, you know. And, um, yeah, so so very privileged in that regard. Yeah, it's, like I said, that's one of the main things that's been so fascinating about this trip is just hearing kind of the the overall origin study of this whole country and the different things that you all have had to to deal with continually to, you know, keep it and you know, to grow it. And like I said, as far as, you know, I'm sure you've heard me mention and people I'm sure again are tired of me saying this, but you know, geographically I'm, I, I'm just terrible, you know, with, uh, knowing where things are at and, and just, um, you know, like as, as far as, you know, where it, around where you live, like in the free state and stuff, like how, where where is that kind of on the the map and and how what what challenges do you have you know getting from place to place you know like is it is it super tough from you know getting i mean i know you're in um you you said you're kind of in and around cape town you know now or whatever but like before how hard would it have been for you to kind of get from there to here and and you know what challenges are there you know with um you know with kind of crossing the border with with birds and things like that yeah, so <clears throat> excuse me. So, so the the Free State Province is basically in the central of South Africa. It's it's bordered by the Orange River, uh, the river, the Orange River, and also the Vol River, and then a couple of um, geographical mountain ranges and stuff. So, the most of it is open grass plains. Um, there is some agriculture, maize and and sorghum and and wheat planted, 
more around the higher rainfall area. Um, I lived in a in a city called Bloemfontein, which is the 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 main city in 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 the Free State, and where I hunted was basically cattle and sheep country. So we had beautiful grasslands, very similar to I think in Nebraska and Kansas, from what I've seen in 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 the U.S. And I was blessed. I mean, we've we we didn't have to drive far. Still, the guys up there, you know, that you've got access to beautiful uh, partridge walking with pointers, great duck walking um, out there. Coming to Cape Town, um, moving across border, this, you know, the Western Cape, especially where we are now, has got a totally opposite winter to what the rest of the country got. So there the winters are dry most of the time. I mean, they get the occasional rainfall in winter, but this is unique. The, the Western Cape's got, um, and, and more specific to where we are now, a lot of winds, very windy area. And high rainfall, as you could see, we've had more rain for the, than for the last 42 years. So it's quite a challenge. It hasn't you know. been awfully wet. <laughs> it's been awfully wet. So, yeah. So, and, and you know, I think any any direction you drive, if you go to Natal, they've got some beautiful grasslands there. You go to Eastern Cape, very similar to the Free State. Um, so it's not like in the States where you drive 15 hours before you see a change of 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 grassland and, and geographical areas. You know, literally you can drive two, three hours and, and the vegetation just changes. I mean, you've seen coming from Cape Town to here how just, you know, you think you're in the Karoo um, up here in the, in, in, in the mountains where we are. So, but yeah, challenges um, coming cross-border. We've, we've, with hawks, it's basically, you can bring your bird with, you know, as long as it's permitted, it's got to get transferred to the new falconry club. If it's a, Captive breed bird, same story. And some of the provincial authorities are very accommodating. So we can travel to another province for a period of three months, as long as that province know we're bringing birds in. That's just all, to, I suppose, just to keep documented where the birds are going and, and what their movements are like. But, yeah. Well, it's definitely more than at times than, you know, like I said, what we have to deal with and, you know, and and – there are certain things, of course, as you know, that, that we have to deal with, depending on what state you're going into. Sometimes you have to have different, you know, um, you know, veterinary, you know, um, the bills of health and things for your birds, that kind of stuff. But like, but yeah, I mean, as far as just some of the different things that, that, um, you know, you all have to do with getting all the different permits and stuff, it sounds like that can be pretty tedious at times in a way you know it can i think in the western cape um this last two years we've we we were thrown with with a lot more paperwork um but you know i don't always see it as a problem i think authorities do these things um and that's my personal take on it it's not always that they're trying to stop falconry i think it's just to try and keep control of things um as you know south africa is is rife with all sorts of wildlife industries um, and some industries have had a bad rap, and I think you know you get thrown under the same umbrella. And um, as a, hey, it's just a bit more paperwork for me. It's it's not an issue. I'm not very good at paperwork. My <laughs> wife always jokes with with my fellow falconers and say, "You better just send me that stuff so I can make sure Francis got it done." But no, to be honest with you, and and I think what it does is it it acts, especially in the Western Cape, it acts as a filtering system. So you don't, you don't, you really don't want to have two hundred guys running around with hawks, you know. Um, people, this is a, this is an, it's not a hobby. It's an, it's an art form. It's a way of life. It's, 
you don't want people running around just doing what they want and got no animal um, ethics, hunting ethics. Um, you know, so I, f- I feel it's it's not a bad thing. And and I think conservation maybe some of it is a little bit overboard, but currently I don't I don't perceive it as a big problem to be honest with you. Yeah. So basically, in your opinion, the the juice is worth the squeeze. You know, as for far sure. as all the extra hoops you have to jump through, then yeah, for sure. I mean, if you if you want to hunt with a rifle in South Africa, we've got very strong. Um, Gun gun laws, yeah, much stronger than uh, or tighter regulated than in the US. I mean, we I would love just to go to a shop and buy myself a nice gun, but the work that you need to do to get a, a gun license is, in my opinion, twenty times more than than you know just following the rules with what the falconry clubs been provided by their conservation authorities. Yeah. Well, and as far as, you know, just kind of going back to the, a little bit of the discussion then about, you know, the, the clubs and, you know, that's one of the other things that I've found that's been pretty eye opening is that, you know, even if you go out and buy a bird, you know, it still technically belongs to the club and the club as a whole is like, you know, kind of like more of the body then that has to deal with, you know, your main countries, you know, club and, and all those kind of things, it, it definitely works different in that way. But I mean, you were pretty involved to some degree with the, with the free state club and, and the, you know, some of the, I don't know, you, you were, you had a position on that at one point, didn't you? Yeah. I, I, um, I've had some, some great friends, um, colleagues, if you can call it that, from 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 the club committee, Stephen Squires. I think you met him at the um, at the conference. Anton Miller, um, Howard Waller. So we 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 worked on a rotational basis of of chairman, vice chairman, and secretary, treasurer. Um, so yeah, basically we we drove um, the club and and we formulated systems um, that's in line with the rest of the country, um, but. At the time, I made an effort of having a very good relationship with the conservation bodies. You know, I'd made a point of going to say how's it and um, just knock on the door and have a cup of tea, especially with the ornithologist, because I think they play a major role in um, wild take decision makings and stuff, because they're basically the scientists. So a lot of work went into just educating them a bit better, not in what they've been taught, but our falconry is not bad in wild take and and and, and information like that. So yeah, I've I've been in and out. Uh, I mean, like I said, twelve years ago, we decided to move to Cape Town for various reasons. And um, but yeah, we we had a good system. We've we've there's some great falconers that came through the ranks because of what you were saying. We we weren't just dishing out falcons and you know. Um, a lot of people that want to get into that hunting, I say, just go buy yourself a shotgun and a nice dog, and you will have a wonderful time. <laughs> this is a, you know, this is a, a way of life or sport or art in whatever context you want to use it. That's, you know, it, it challenges your relationship with your spouse or your girlfriend and family. You know, the balance act is 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 difficult. Very much so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. And you know, that's another thing I find too, is the the more falconers that I get to know, it's like that balancing act, you know, some are willing to sacrifice or dedicate a little bit less than others and what, and and, and not even in all the different ways you would think sometimes, but, but it is interesting, you know, just some people, even, even though we think sometimes we're ate up with 
with all of this and, you know, all the sacrifices that we make and stuff. It's, it's been interesting talking to some folks that it's just like, wow, I, I don't, I wouldn't do that, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or whatever, or, and then there's, there's people that you're going to meet too, that you kind of wish there was a little bit more of a, of a presence and stuff. But, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how you are. I, I try to worry more about me, you know, and, and what I'm doing. And, you know, I don't, I, I've got too many irons and too many different fires to worry about too much about what other people are doing other than than myself and keeping up with mine and my own but yeah yeah i, th I think john you, you know that the thing is is that you've got to find what makes you tick mm -hmm. if it's micro hawking or slope soaring eagles or bashing bushes with harris hawks and or flying ducks or grouse or whatever with long wing falcons um you know myself i I always aspire to a very high standard of falconry because that's my nature. You know, I don't do things half. Um, but that's not always to say that every falconer that comes to the sport needs to do that. And I think what we've done in the Western Cape, and kudos to to the club committee at the moment, you know, Andre and them, um, we, we try and pair the right hawk for the right person's personality, his access to quarry, um, what his time schedules like his financial situation so and and by doing that we've been more uh, prevalent in in my helping make those decisions i mean it can't be it's not mandatory but the club will guide you and every single person that we've helped go on a path has come back and said they've had the most fun they've had in the whole falconry career so i think the club plays a major role in that um like I said, I mean, coming up here in, in the mountains with my dogs and hunting the grey wing in these difficult conditions, for me, is a challenge. You know, it's, I always like to raise the bar for myself. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think the clubs play a very, very vital role in creating healthy falconry going forward. Yeah. Well, and, and without spending too much more time talking about, you know, because I've, I've spent a lot of time talking with different people about the, the, the whole club, you know, aspect of things and, and how you all do the, the grading system here and all that. But I mean, just out of curiosity, being as you have been involved with, uh, you know, like the, the kind of inner workings of, you know, the clubs and things like that in your past, I mean, I've kind of asked, you know, because one of the things I, I do like to get people's opinions on is like, in what ways do they think that things could be eventually progressively be made to be better? Or if there's anything that you personally would change or, you know, if you like the, the way the system is, you know, that's already in place or if there is anything you would even change. Well, yeah, to, to answer your question, I think in the Western Cape, um, I don't think there's been such a healthy, um, I won't say not a healthy club, but in the way that, that if you look at all the birds being flown, I don't think in the history of the of the, the Cape Falconry Club, and, and I might be wrong, but has there been such a healthy um, number of long wings, short wings, um, of good hawks and, and falcons that, that catch quarry? You know, it was always, not just here, countrywide, you know, it's, you go to field meets and there's always one or two guys that that hawks that stand out and they got good dogs. Where I think we've we've tried to change that system and and it basically comes back to what I just told you now about pairing the right birds for the right people. Um, not everybody's long wingers, not everybody's micro hawkers. Um, um, so yeah, I think 
trying to change things. It's just, you know, I love the world evolving. I think you just constantly got to try and evolve and try and make things better and mentorship. For me, mentorship is 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 the golden, you know, make the right decisions. Um, for argument's sake, if a guy staying on a farm, we've got this new youngster that you've seen, Olvain, he's, he's got that beautiful lana that I trapped for him. Um, help him, guide him, mentor him properly, and then he will enjoy himself because otherwise it just becomes a frustration, you know. Um, we've sort of changed a little bit from the old routine in the Western Cape, um, you know, from what the rest of the country was always doing. Um, but it, it's not it's not a decision that was made to go upstream. It was more to help the falconer. Um, skills development, as I call it, you know. Without necessary skills and mentorship, you can go and Google and watch YouTube videos, but you need somebody that on the ground that really helps you. And and, and it's a sacrifice, you know, as a as a mentor, you you sacrifice your time and but it's wonderful look sitting back and you and 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 you look back at the club and you see all these these guys, not just youngsters, I mean let's call them new members. You just see the quality in their birds and, and their their love for being out there and doing what they're doing. And I mean that's why we do the sport. For sure, and so basically, you know, it's it's not so much the the uh, the rules, regs, and what's written down on paper as much as is in your opinion. Then as much as just the um, the the other intangibles of just pairing people up with the right people, and also making sure you're doing that much extra due diligence to bring in the quality people. You know, is more than anything else. Then basically, is is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, and, and, and to look back, to get back to our wild take, I mean, to get back to the Lana discussion, you give a guy his first long wing, he's been an apprentice or a, 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 for a year, so he's shown interest in, in coming out with falconers and learning about the quarry and what they do, and you, you trap him a Lana and you, you assess a good mentor to him. But if you, you know, Passage Lana has got this old skill set, it's fitted, knows quarries, got footwork. You don't want to bother him with an IAS and you've got to teach him now about first you need to get the bird fit. And, you know, Pitcher explains it quite well in his book, The Flying of Falcons, the, the mental development of birds, you know, it, because if you throw a person with too much information, they, they're they going to fumble, you know. It's it's too much to, to take in and it's, you know, you don't know where to grab and where to let go. So... To get back to that, and I think it's the decisions that the club makes for the right person at the right time, the right hawk um, for the right conditions, is is paramount. So yeah, that's that's I think I think we're on a good good roll, as you've also seen in some of the birds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the most part, it seems like your system works pretty well, you know. And you know, I'm I'm a big firm believer in a lot of ways of uh, tr don't try to fix things that aren't broken necessarily, and like you said, I mean, it seems like so far from the people that I've met and the people that I've gotten to know over this past week that, um, you know, there is a good core in place here. And um, you're absolutely correct in that. I mean, mentorship and how you're brought up in a certain thing, especially this thing, can kind of just make or break your your overall experience. Yeah. 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 But um, as far as now going back some to, you know, your personal falconry. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the whole, you know, hunting gray wings and, you know, that's kind of what you, you really like to do. And I mean, what in particular about that form of hunting and, um, you know, that prey base is, is what, I mean, what, what is, is fascinating to you about all that? You know, as, as I, as I'm getting older now, I, I fell in love with pointers. 
um, because when to get back to when we started, you know, you drive on the on the gravel roads and see a covey of, of Orange River Franklin, which is some of the Franklin that's prevalent in the Free State, and you'd put a falcon up and you want to try and flush them and they're just gone. You know, they just disappeared. And and I got a dog basically. I've always been an animal lover, but I got a dog, a pointer, actually a great pointer from a friend of mine, Albert Waller. And um just started falling in love with with the dog work. And um Duck, I enjoyed duck walking and grouse walking, but the choreography between dogs, the mountains, the wind, and a falcon in the mountains is just, everything's got to be perfect. You know, you got to choose your flashes and stuff. And it's, I think it was when we were listening to um, Dave's, Dave's got uh, Dave Jones last night, sorry, um, and how they're flying those red grouse up in, in the moors, you know. And us, is like he says, he he likes to make make it difficult for himself because it raises the bar within himself, you know. And um, but the dog work for me is is I'm at the point in my life where I enjoy running dogs as much as I do flying hawks, you know. Just seeing a pointer, um, you know, casting in the mountains and running, just using the air scent and and draw into the you know the birds and stuff. It's just a wonderful experience. And that's it's funny that you mention that because the further I get into falconry myself, the more I've started to, you know, I don't consider myself um, a dog expert by any stretch. I mean, I've I know how to, you know, kind of deal with dogs a lot better now and this, that and the other. But I feel like I'm just now starting to, you know, understand and really appreciate the true value of having dogs in your your team and i know it's really been my recent um you know my getting my dachshunds going recently is kind of what spurred that for me as well and it's always really cool you know talking to other guys that that really value you know using dogs as part of their their hunting team because i've i've found similarities in that almost everybody that uses dogs or has dogs in their teams end up almost valuing the dogs just as much, if not more yeah. than the birds. Like, you know, some of the guys that I've talked to, I think if you held a gun to their head and made them choose, you know, you can either have birds for the rest of your life or your dogs. I'm pretty sure I know which one they would probably choose. <laughs> I mean, are you kind of in that category also or? Yeah, I must say, you know, the, the a lot of people ask me and, and outside falconry community now always ask me, you know, do you, you know, do do you are you affectionate to your birds? And and it's a, for me, it's a difficult thing to answer. I think you're affectionate to the birds, but you, it's more for me. It's an it's an admiration, affection, if I can put those two. Where dog is a love of affection. You know, it's it's two different things. Um, but it's you know watching, like I say, watching a dog and and going into the mountains and and just, it's wild. And you have to be fit, physically fit as well. You know, you need to walk. You know, like yesterday we. We walked for three hours and we found a cover. We didn't catch anything, but we had some great flying. Um, but it's it's I I've always been I always used to get a bit bored with getting things done and you know, now what's next? You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> yeah. and I fly a little bit of RC aerobatic planes and stuff as well in my off time. And um, you know, I remember getting my trainer and watching these guys doing these barrel rolls with RC planes and like Hell, I won't do that. I don't want to be just flying any plane, you know. For me, it's like raising <laughs> the bar. But not everybody's in that um, frame of mind. And 
Also, to get back to the dogs, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got to be careful not to just tell people to take dogs because not everybody's living situation is conducive to gun dogs. And you know, gun dogs, highly energetic dogs. So a lot of falconry can be done without dogs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of falconry currently is being done without dogs. Um, you know, grouse hawking, duck hawking, it's an aid and a benefit. But I think if you're not vested into dogs as much as, as what I am or and, and a lot of falconers are, and see the appreciation of how they contribute to the team. You know, my wife always says to me, she says, you're striving for the impossible. You're trying to get the bird and the hawk and the quarry and the weather conditions in together. Why don't you just choose something easier? And I said, well, that's when it comes together, that's really special. Well, and I think also you, you make a good point in that there needs to be just as much mentorship with, with dogs as there, you know, really with, with birds in a way too. Because, you know, I really wish that when I was doing my homework initially, you know, I also have visualists. When I was doing my homework on that particular breed of dog, the, what caught my eye as an apprentice, you know, in that early mindset was just, you know, more of the history of the breed as opposed to thinking more about the practical application of that breed where I live. And in retrospect, I mean, very much love our dogs and, you know, they're very much a part of our family, but going with the dachshunds up front or, you know, a breed like that was much more conducive or is much more conducive to where I'm at and what I'm doing. And I think it's also important to, you know, take those into consideration just as much as, you know, picking the right bird for the right quarry and, and where you live and, and all those things as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, with pointers, I'm, you know, which it's, it's, you know, and, and, uh, the, the word English point, I mean, the, the breed was originated in the UK, but they call them pointers now. Um, mm -hmm. It's a it's a highly specialized animal. You know, it needs it needs to get exercise, especially the new genetics, the American genetics. We've imported quite a bit of that. And it's the same as flying a, 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 a long wing. You know, it's a lot of dedication. But my, my personal point of view, if you want a good retriever, just go and join a field trial club. You know, there's a wealth of information um, the genetics, you can go and look at some of the the dogs um, that the breed, the guys are planning to breed with. So you can look at the different personalities, which is important because a falcon you can release or retire to a breeding project, whatever. A dog is your companion. You know, it's not that easy just to, if it doesn't work for your household, to get rid of it. Um, so, yeah, I just say to the guys, just I do field trials as well and, and lovely community. Um, share the same passion as what we do as falconers, but just with the dogs. There's not an extra element in it, and it's that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the dog community can be uh, different as well, <laughs> you know, for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure you probably heard us discuss that, you know, from time to time too. But but it was very eye opening. I mean, attending my first field trial and and having that experience, yeah. you know, for the first time myself, not too <laughs> long ago, it was. Uh, it was eye opening, you know, it's, it's definitely different. It's a different world, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely is a, you know, in a lot of cases, a 10 to 15 year commitment for, you know, to, to have that as part of your, your family. And, um, yeah. And, and it's a lot of extra provisions as well, you know, for, you know, people that like to travel and like to do other things, you've got to make sure that, you know, the dog's just as well taken care of, if not, you know, and, you know, in some people's eyes and if not more taken care of than the birds, but, yeah, yeah but, uh, but yeah, no, I just, like I said, it's, it's one of those where you basically 
have to think a lot going into it. And like I said, I don't regret any decisions I've made personally, but yeah, if, if I had had it to do all over again, I, I definitely would have went with a smaller breed. Even, even one is kind of sometimes stubborn and, and independent as, you know, the wiener dogs, but, um, yeah, anyway. you talk yeah. about smaller breeds. I had a, a friend, me and a friend of mine imported some Jer Prairie Falcons from a Falconer Dave Dixon up in Salt Lake City. Oh, I can't even remember what the day, 2003 or something. And when I acquired this, I just wanted to hunt ducks with something that had prairie in them because I like the striking ability of, of the prairie. And I got a little Springer Spaniel. And for eight seasons, we hawked and just caught ducks. And she was a wonderful, wonderful dog, you know, smaller breed. Um, could jump in the footwell of the passenger seat, you know, and just a wonderful temperament, you know. So, yeah, it's pairing the right dog again for the right reasons, you know. Same with what I discussed earlier with you with the with the hawks. Mm -hmm. yeah. Don't get an English pointer if you just want to beat bushes in front and look for hares. It's not the right dog, you know. I'm sure that being dog people, you know, we could uh, talk all day about that in particular too. Yeah. But um, but I think now would be um, I, I do before we switch subjects again, though, I do want to ask you in particular, like especially about the gray wings, as far as, you know, your methodology and going about hunting them and stuff. I mean, it's pretty much the train that we're in right now. The best way to that's like I said, that's one of the, the things that I've enjoyed about this week so far is learning about you all's prey base and how different it is, you know, to, um, you know, to what we have and stuff. So, I mean, I've seen quail hawking. I've seen, you know, other types of thing yeah, but like this type of stuff is still completely foreign to me so describe a little bit for anybody listening you know kind of what goes into you know trying to hunt you know gray wing well first of all you you've got to you've got to find um the vegetation that's not overgrazed or you know burnt or um where the vegetation is too sparse so you you need to have an understanding about your 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 grass grasses and, and plant species because I mean that's fundamentally what what they live off and you know provides them protection and breeding and stuff. Um, and and generally they are more inclined to be a higher altitude species. That's sort of the rule of thumb with Graving Franklin. They they seem to be more and I call it highlands, not mountains literally, but um, um, you know hillsides. And we always um, in the Eastern Cape you'd find find them at higher altitudes. Um, and so they're basically a, a mountain or a mountain uh, species. Um, the coveys can get up to 20 birds in a, in a covey, um, which I haven't seen any other partridge species covey up to that size. Um, and they're also quite a specialist Franklin species. You know, they're not um, like some of the Spurfell and the Swains and Franklins and Cape Franklins that, you know, congregate around houses and stuff normally. They... They're quite a specialist species. So it's obviously finding, I call it sort of plateaus in the mountains. You know, you get a slope and it levels out to a sort of a plateau. That's what they seem to like, you know, because they want to be able to sit out of the wind as well. So um, still trying to figure them out 100% here in the, in the Western Cape. But I think I've got it quite sorted. I found where, especially, yeah, we've got the, the Renostafelt, Karubus type, um, you know, it's a very hard shrub. And then you get the grasses in between, which seems to provide them with ample food and and places to hide and 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 give them enough cover. And in your particular opinion, is there a particular, um, you know, like 
particular species of longwing that's better suited to hunt them? Or, I mean, is it something that you can also hunt with hawks too? Or Yeah, you can. Um, look, they're very fast-flying species of, mm-hmm. of game bird. Um, I think your black sparrow hawks, you know, looking at, at, um, at, at our, our short-wing species, um, you don't want to you don't want to second first phase them you want to give them a fair chance you know they don't obviously as you know they're not a grouse that'll fly 80 kilometers far they don't have that ability but they've got a very two three four hundred meter sprint in them that's very very fast um so your black sparrow hawks um in the short wings the one that comes to mind the others the others are too small because it's like quite a chunky little bird you know um, i think very similar to your chuckers um that you get in the us or your, your hunts I think the hunt's a little bit smaller. Um, but then the long wings, the rule of thumb is not to go too big. What we've found, in, especially in the grasslands, is that the silhouette of the bird can be intimidating sometimes. They feel threatened, and then you get them where they, they, you know, they dump and jump. They fly, and then they, when the bird comes, they, they just dump into the grass, which doesn't provide a very nice aesthetic flight. So rule of thumb, anything... I'd say from about 500 to 800 gram range. Species, hybrids, peregrines, any any of those sort of species. Even the lander falcons do very, very well on them. Cool. Yeah, yeah. so it's more of a size than a species. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, well, cool. Like I said, thanks for the quick uh, introduction to that too. I mean, so I've gotten a chance to see that very briefly so far in this week of wind and rain, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, from what I've seen it, it looks pretty neat. And especially considering like the, um, the terrain, yeah, it is high and you can, you know, if you're not used to it, you can feel it, you know, yeah. after a bit, but at the same time, the, um, you know, the, the foliage and everything else isn't too bad to, 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 to like, isn't too bad to, uh, traverse, I guess yeah. either. I mean, it's, yeah. For the most part, the terrain is pretty easy to walk through, you know, even though the altitude is, well, we're up in the clouds, basically. Yeah. yeah, But But no, it's been fun. And I mean, as far as, you know, I think this is a good time then to go ahead and transition to, you know, the the story time part of the uh, (laughs) of of the uh, the podcast. But I mean, what what particular hunting story always comes to mind whenever you think of one of your, you know, prime hunting experiences or, you know, one of the favorite birds that you've flown or, you know, share one of those things with us if you don't care. Yeah. um, You know, I think I've flown so many birds in my life (laughs) and, and, um, you know, we always seem to look at the ones that fly the highest and, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's always probably for me, it's. One of the first ones that you got that really was up there, but you didn't have any other reference to measure it against. And 30 years later, you look back at that time and you think, wow, she was really up there. Talking about a specific little peregrine, African minor peregrine that I flew. And she was just a honey. I mean, her personality, she didn't sit, she'd always try her best. And one thing for me with hawks is consistency. You know, I've always, I don't, I, I don't like a bird that only needs to fly at a certain time of day and perfect conditions because um, I like an all-rounder, you know, it must be doing its thing. So in 1990, let me just think, 94, 95, I bought a bird from Tim Wagner's breeding project at the Transvaal Falconry Club 
small little African. She she was one of the smallest size. She flew at 645 grams. And um, she was basically my, she wasn't my first peregrine, but my first captive bred African peregrine. And um, yeah, I think, and she, she was just from the start, she was just with a program, you know, she really, the first year I entered it in the sky trial, we won it. I think we won it once or twice, came a couple of second, third places. And, and um, up in Transvaal, there's a sand grouse called the yellow-throated sand grouse, which is the size of a racing pigeon. And they are very difficult to catch, um, especially for an Ayers hawk. You know, passage birds do it a bit easier. And in my second year, I went up there, and I'll never forget that flight. It was on a friend of mine's birthday, and she just flew to a little, literally a pinprick, and we flushed five or six of them. And I think that stoop that day was the most memorable day. You know, it's like burned into my memory for so long. But I had a lovely relationship with her. I mean, she, we, I flew her for seven or eight years. Um, always had something else that was part of the team, you know, another bird. But she was just, she caught yellowbill ducks, partridges, doves, grouse. She was really, really something else. And just a honey to be around with, you know. So I think I'd put her there. I had a, that Jib Prairie that I was referring you to. He was just, he was just a machine. I mean, he was just, but never had the connection if you want to put it into a, an emotional connection like you asked me earlier on like penny and and i think it's you know that the, the birds like that come a time in your life where you're still young and and you go through different times in your life and and the bird's always there you know it was like that that dog that's always accompanied you you know so um yeah i think she her name was penny yeah she was she was really something else i can't imagine you having a overall better connection with a with a peregrine than say a something like a deer prairie that's such a shocker <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it was just a she was just a she was it's just you know with certain animals you get a connection and it's just it's difficult to explain no uh, and yeah. and they say there there's kind of a saying as you know within the falconry community it's like every falconer at, at some point if they stick with it long enough always ends up having one special bird like their one you know, like that they'll never be able to top. It'll always stick out as like that, that yeah. one. And yeah. then it's like after that, you know, whenever something either happens with that bird or they have to, you know, whatever, whatever ends up with the next bird, they have to fly. And the one after that and the one after that, it's almost like they're trying to find that, that one connection again. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, that's cool. Well, and I guess, you know, we can go ahead and, and wrap this up here shortly. And I want to go ahead, though, and ask you the same thing that I've been asking um, a, a lot of the falconers that I've had on as guests recently. And that, you know, if you, if you don't care, just um, leave your, you know, uh, best piece of advice or words of wisdom, sentiment, whatever you want to call it to, you know, either current or, or future generations or, you know, people about th people thinking about, uh, you know, getting into the sport. Yeah, it's funny. I think, you know, as, you, as, as we all getting older, we you look back and, and, and you reflect on on certain things. And myself, if I look back, it's 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 good to be performance-driven and result-driven, but never lose the fact of the enjoyment factor. I think once you lose the enjoyment factor, you become a problem for yourself because it's not – you're more driven to results, and we're working with live animals. We're not working with a radio control plane that you can – 
fly vertically unlimited you know we we and and the more as i'm getting older the more i'm starting to realize that same with dogs you know just they animals so just but if you go out you get out in the mountain like yeah well like we are now and uh, you wait for the sun to come up just ch- you know cherish the moment just enjoy that moment and look at the grass look at all the other birds around you and um the beautiful countryside and just be thankful that you're healthy and you'll be able to do the sport you know <laughs> i think it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of things we take for granted um but if you're not having fun and and you know put put results within yourself this is not a sport that you do to impress people um then you're in it for the wrong reason then you should go play team sports or something you know so just yeah just just enjoy it enjoy it <laughs> yeah but uh, you have to admit though sometimes it's it's sometimes it's easy to be to get uh <laughs> you know sucked into the yeah. uh the numbers game and, yeah. and get a little competitive with yeah. with that group that yeah. you always go out with yeah. that um always constantly has to you know rib you and, and everything else but um well i mean it sounds like you've had a a pretty uh a pretty fulfilling, you know, career thus far in falconry. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been good getting the chance to, to sit down with yourself and, and everyone else that's been willing to, to do this. And, um, like I said, we're always appreciative and, and, and very, um, you know, happy to get the chance to kind of, you know, spread these stories and, and, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, just thanks again. And I guess, um, I don't know. We'll see how the the wind dies down. You know, I don't I don't know how much more is going to be accomplished the rest of the day. I know I'm going to be talking to a couple more people, but um, were you planning on getting out again later? Or you... Yeah, tomorrow morning and Saturday morning is really looking good. Um, yeah. We're going to go to some plateaus that I've haven't been since we arrived. Yeah, I've been watching the weather since last week, <laughs> and I just saw it wasn't going to change. So we're looking forward to pointers are well rested today. So we'll go out there tomorrow and and Saturday morning. So. Yeah glad if you can put your hiking boots on and, and feel like burning a couple of <laughs> galleries <laughs> come take a walk with us it's 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 just the the, the views up there it's just breathtaking you need to come to indiana sometime they're yeah. not they're not so breathtaking but you but you'd have fun i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure and if you ever if you ever want to come and experience some uh some midwestern dirt hawking you're more than welcome and um but thank yeah you. and thank you for the invitation and as I said, thank you for your for your time and for doing this. No, thank you very much, and thanks for you guys for using the technology we have these days in in bringing the the messages across from all over the world. You know, it's like I said to you earlier on. It's sometimes nice just to make a cup of tea at night and lie in bed and you know just switch you off from the, all the world's problems and listen to people's falconry stories. It's wonderful and and how everybody sort of got into the sport and everything. So yeah, kudos to you and your team and for bringing this this together. Well, thank you. And I guess there's something positive to be said for not having nightmares, you know, having to listen to this right before going to bed and stuff too, you know, going, going to bed. Um, I'm sure with the, the sound of my soothing voice is always just, just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, John. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, thank you Francois. I appreciate it. Cool, man. Thank you. Mm-hmm.